Hello and welcome to this week's Golf Shake podcast coming to you in the aftermath of what was a truly unforgettable, momentous Open Championship as Jordan Spieth produced what I think will go down as being one of the greatest finishes in major history, certainly one of the greatest turnarounds in major history to come through and win the Open Championship at Royal Birkdale, his third major at the age of just 23. He turns 24 in a few days' time and he's really he's joined the all-time greats of the game in having won the Masters the US Open and now the Open securing the claret jug in just incredible fashion it was one of the most dramatic back nines I think we've seen for a very long time last year we had the, the electrifying duel between Henrik and Phil this was a little bit more different a bit more of a slow burner I think for the most part but then obviously on 13 we had that dramatic rules debacle and the whole kind of finding a drop it really sort of changed the whole kind of dynamic of the day and space somehow transformed his fortunes of the day and came through and won the championship in just unbelievable fashion. It was one of the most in- impressive displays I've ever seen and uh, it really will go down as being one of the, the great finishes to the Open in its 146th year. And of course, last week when we previewed the Open this year, we had Josh, Josh Jeffrey and Stuart Armstrong on the podcast, but unfortunately Josh, who actually we have to quickly say tipped Jordan Spieth to win the Open this year. He unfortunately cannot join us tonight, but I am joined by Stuart, who I'm afraid to say didn't tip Jordan Spieth, but Stuart, your guys did okay this week as well, didn't they? Hello, uh, yeah, thanks for thanks for having me back. Um, still a bit stunned trying to take, take in that um, at the last day of the Open, and yeah, it was uh, quite, quite the viewing, so yeah, I think Josh... Totally locked out with his picks of Jordan Spieth and Matt Kutcher. You oh, basically harsh. picked it. <laughs> um, and Poulter, but we won't say much about that. And uh, at least my guys that's made true. the cut. So that's not so bad. But they, they wouldn't have made you any money at the book, bookmakers, which is why you should never trust any of your tips. Well, not my, well, not minor. Well, not minor. Your tips, Stuart, because my tips were. I think I had Louis West as one of my tips, and he finished one shot ahead of Sandy Lyle. You know, so that was perhaps not the the most uh, incisive and uh, insightful bit of a betting tip from me. But yeah, well, obviously Jordan yeah. Spieth and Matt Kutcher were two of. Sorry, on you go. Yeah, no, I was going to say you you kind of hedged your bets because you said actually that the South Africans go go quite well at the Open, and uh, one of them did go quite well with the, the a record sixty two. So. Even though you didn't name him by name, I think you can take the a model victory there for Brandon Grace. Well, I do appreciate that. It's very kind of you. But of course, you do realise I am the host. So obviously, appeasing to me is a very important thing because I can mute you and block you from the podcast as we're recording it. But yes, obviously, a great win for a great achievement there for Brandon Grace. But for Jordan Spieth, we must, we must focus on him because what I said, I, I built it up there and it was just the most astonishing thing to watch. And really, I think it was it became very surreal. Obviously, he got off to a really poor start. Three bogeys in the first four holes, which you couldn't quite believe because he looked so assured coming in the first three days. He looked so comfortable, was was playing so well, had a three-shot lead, and he, and he blew it, obviously, early on. He threw it away, and he he, he was losing, losing shots all directions. He was missing short putts. He didn't look comfortable at all. And uh, Matt Kuchar was there, didn't quite throw any decisive blows, which was perhaps a, a positive for Jordan there, a bit of a relief there. But Matt was there playing, playing very solidly, doing what he was going to do. But then really when we came to 13 and Jordan hit just what was one of the worst shots you're ever going to see from a professional golfer off a tee. It was so far wide, it was unreal. Some of the camera work was incredible, trying to see the view of that. And he was very lucky to obviously find the ball in the first place. But then, of course, we had the, the lengthy sort of rules issue. We were trying to find out where he was going to drop the ball. 
obviously into the driving range, of course, in the end. It took 17 minutes. It was an astonishing scene, really quite surreal and, and obviously dramatic. And um, and incredibly from there, obviously, as quickly mentioned there, there was some great viewing, obviously, for Titleist, who, of course, Jordan plays their clubs, and he was standing right in front of the Titleist truck in the driving range. So obviously a great bit of free advertising there for Titleist, and they'll, they'll be very appreciative of that, I'm sure. Then he came through from there, obviously, made a miraculous bogey, and that seemed to turn him around. But Stuart, looking at that 13th hole and how Jordan started in his round, and obviously he had fallen behind Matt at that point. It was looking very grim for him. We were thinking, is this going to be a kind of inexorable slide towards a really ignominious defeat at the Open? Or yeah, even I mean, worse, potentially, than his dramatic loss at the Masters last year. So, Stuart, when, when Jordan was on the 13th, when he hit his ball into the, the long grass and looked completely lost... What were you thinking there? Did you think, this is it, he's blowing it? Could you have possibly imagined what you were going to see in the next hour? Uh, yes, uh, we, we, we thought at that point it was game over because I mean, coming into today, um, nobody thought anything other than this is just going to be a walkover for Jordan Spieth. We just thought he's three shots in the lead and it's just going to be a procession. And then by the by the fourth tee, um, it, was, it was all square, but Nothing really much happened between holes five and the the turn. It was each a peachy, and it ended up a bit. Um, both of them on eight under par at, at the turn, and then yeah, like I say, the the he ended up in a place that isn't on the stroke saver, and uh, I think uh, <laughs> speed Scaddy Michael um, done quite well to get a distance there. What I mean, what what happened there is if you were at your usual medal, you would have went. Off your fairway, over the rough, over the adjacent fairway, and into the rough on the other side. It was that far off course. It must have been like sixty yards, and it ended up. It hit mm. a. I don't know if it hit a man called George, but it was certainly the mention of a man called George who spotted Spieth's ball. Uh, whether that was a good thing or not, we don't know because Spieth might actually be better just taking three off the tee at that point. But the, the lie he had was horrendous. It was in the the side of. Um, a really steep dune. He actually had trouble walking down to it to 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 find his ball. So he looked at his ball and thought, "Right, I'm taking a, an un, unplayable lie, which is a, a one-stroke penalty." And the options he had there, he could have went back to the tee. He could have taken a drop within two stroke, two club lengths of his ball. But the option he went there was, you can go as far back as you like on the line between where the ball landed and the flag which presented some issues because the flag was unseen over a massive sand dune and hordes of people. But it, it took a bit of time, I think 18 minutes, and there was a bit of criticism. But um, that wasn't just down to Jordan Spieth. They had to make sure they took a correct and proper drop and the rules officials were over it. And John, pa- John Paramore from the European Tour was there to make sure it was all done properly. So he went back along the line from where this ball was and that meant he took a drop inside the, the Titleist Tour truck, which was sitting on the, the driving range, which um, they, they classed that as an immovable obstruction, but last I checked, they can move trucks out of the way, but they decided that the truck couldn't be yes, moved, indeed. and so they can there get a free line-of-sight drop, which took home two club lines to the right of the truck towards the, the sky open zone. So he did have quite a narrow gap between a Titleist truck and the sky open zone um, marquee but from there I don't know how he managed to get a yardage it must have been around 190 yards from there he managed to get it just to the right of the 13th green he chipped on he made his putt up and down 
for a bogey five. I mean, when we first saw Spieth's live, we were thinking this is perhaps a two or even a three shot swing, but he kept it down to the one shot loss, the bogey. Matt Kutcher missed his birdie putt, and so they went on to the, the 14th tee with, I think Kutcher at that point had a, a two shot lead, and still thinking Spieth's probably got a few things in his head here. He's not been going well all day. He's just had that wild drive. Kutcher's got a two-shot lead. The game is surely over, and Spieth nearly hold it for a hole-in-one on the par three. It was just such an incredible shot. And from that point onwards, it was just... It was birdie, eagle, birdie, birdie, par up the 18 for what has been said is the greatest five-hole completion of an Open Championship ever. Yeah, I think it, it absolutely was. And uh, you mentioned obviously coming through, they're making the great bogey, and that seemed to galvanise him. That was the one sort of, the one sort of positive he had going there. And for some reason, he almost set the reset button in his head. And obviously, in the 14, 14th holes, hold that tee shot, a great moment, and there would have been absolutely momentous had he hold that for hole in one. Made a great two mm. there. But then the eagle on 15, it was an amazing reaction when he hold that very long putt from the front of the green. He stood there, he almost looked in, looked in complete disbelief when he hold it. And of course he shouted over to Michael, you get the ball out of the hole and whatever you else. But I think he was so kind of, he was so kind of caught up in the moment there, he just couldn't quite know how to react to it. He wasn't fist pumping or anything, he just sort of stood there thinking, wow. And then obviously on 16, it, it, that, he just... Wrote... So I was just going to say, that, that moment on the 15th, it was a little bit 30 foot putt for the eagle and... It was almost as if he didn't know what to do, and it reminded me of remember Justin Rose when he was playing Phil Mickelson and the the Medina Ryder Cup. Yes, where he he sunk a monster putt and he, he didn't celebrate. He just stood there and just done this strange movement, <laughs> and that's yeah, yeah, that's uh, pretty much what he done. And there's going to be great gifts done of this, Michael. You get that. Oh, absolutely. It'll be, it'll be a great sort of social media phenomenon, that mm -hmm. whole thing. And uh, yeah, it was an amazing reaction. I think, he, again, like I say, he almost seemed overwhelmed by the whole moment. And I think because I think in the end, he had been going through so much psychologically. And I almost think that the 13th, the, that lengthy break, you know, that 17, 18 minutes there, even though it was a very tumultuous situation, there was a lot of walking about, there was a lot of uncertainty trying to find the right spot to drop the ball. And there was obviously a lot of contention there. But I think it almost took him out of the moment. It took him out of the final round. Because at that point he was sliding away. And he spoke about this afterwards in his interview with Sarah Sturrock on Sky Sports. We talk, talked about remembering last year at the Masters when he obviously had that disaster on the 12th. Finding the water, throwing away the championship and allowing Danny Willett to come through and win the, the green jacket that year. And he mentioned that was on his mind. He remembered that and he thought, will it happen again? And he had to overcome those demons. And I think almost on any round of golf, as we all know, as any level of golfer, no matter how well you're playing or practicing, how many, how well you've hit the ball in the range, you, when you get on that first tee, you need to find something quickly to settle yourself in. And today, Jordan didn't really get that. He couldn't quite... Obviously, his first no, tee shot was in, in the long rough and whatever else, and he just mm -hmm. couldn't quite find anything to settle himself down because Wayne Riley on Sky spoke about how on the range beforehand, Jordan was striping his driver every single time. He was hitting the ball great on the range. But again, on the first tee, it's a whole different thing altogether, particularly, of course, in the final day of a major. Of course, that, that whole 13th thing seemed to settle him down. He came through from there and he was just unrelenting. And uh, when he held the putt on 16, you were almost just not even surprised by that because it was just, you know, he, this guy seemed to be able to do anything. 
And uh, it was an incredible moment there. And you almost felt for Matt Kutcher, who had been there thereabouts all for the last two days, battling with Spieth. He played really well on Saturday. He was solid on Sunday, wasn't making too many great moves, but he was there to potentially capitalise on what seemed to be a complete collapse on Spieth's part. He was Kutcher buried 15, he buried 17, he really did probably the perfect game plan in his own mind, given the situation. But Spieth somehow snatched it from him, of course, making the birdie on 17 as well. So it, it was an astonishing finish. And uh, Stuart, as you were watching it, kind of the, we're all kind of caught up in the emotion of all, just the, the sheer unbelievability of some of it. I sort of described it as being virtual unreality. It was like, it was so immersive, but it was it was like, this can't be real, this can't be happening. And and that's, somehow it seems that Spieth has these ingredients that just make him able to pull things out of the bag, to do the right things at the right moment. But even then, I think this surpassed all expectations. So Stuart, as you were watching this today, when you saw the birdies going, when you saw the eagle going, what was your emotion like as a golf fan just watching this? Um, mainly it was, it was disbelief, but not disbelief because you, you just knew that it was going to, well, not until the, the 14th fall, but after the 14th fall, you knew Spieth was there, he was in his zone and he was just going to start canning 30 foot putts yep. for fun. Um, so the, I mean, Spieth's always known as his, his strength is through his, his putting, although he did have a, a few dodgy putts on the front nine, but um, what what isn't commonly known as his stroke gains iron play is very good, especially this year. Mm-hmm. Um, yep. The many reason for the slump last year, everybody thinks it was his putting because he couldn't do this magic with his putt. It was actually his iron play wasn't very good last year. That's what's came back up and that's why he's now a major champion for the third time. So, uh, But to emotionally, yeah, it's it's hard it's hard to love him in a way. It's hard to get emotionally excited for Spieth because there's just this thing about him, you, you think he's you think he's a, a a robot or he doesn't have any emotion I mean, maybe Henrik Stenson had that same kind of aura about him that he doesn't get too excited on on the on the golf course so sitting here watching it with my family, they were all getting very excited with Ferrari making this charge through the pack and we thought yes, here's, here's a chance for mm. Ferrari to go, so Rory still does move the needle, I think we'll come to Rory in a, a couple of minutes anyway to, about how yeah. how well he's finished this tournament, but when you when you look at Rory gets everybody excited and then Jordan, it, it's it is difficult to root for them, but he's just such a complete golfer that it's it's hard not to admire him. Yeah, oh absolutely, and you have to admire what he's done here. You know, to win three majors at a stage of his career is astonishing, and I think in the end, to win in this circumstance, you know, players can win when they're playing at their best. You know, that's it. When Rory's gone out there in the past and has blown away fields at Congressional and at uh, Kiawa Island in the PGA, and even to an extent at Hoylake in the Open, he's done that before. When you, when you, But when Rory, for me, his most impressive win was actually the second PGA one at Valhalla when he had to battle with Ricky and Phil in the back nine there. And that was a different sort of examination for Rory. And I think Jordan here, he's had to battle for all his major wins to some extent as well. But I think here, particularly this, when he was he didn't have his, his game. He was struggling. Obviously, he was battling sort of the mental demons of the past of Augusta last year. And even this year at Augusta as well, when he fell away at the weekend. And even at the US Open as well. And of course, his, his previous losses in the PGA and the Open. You know, Jordan's won majors, but he's also lost some as well. He's had a real, a great kind of thorough education, if you like, as a golfer at such a young stage of his career. Both the good and the bad. And that will surely benefit him going forward. But to come through today against a very steady opponent in Kutcher and really beating himself, overcoming himself 
and where he was. Obviously, getting a break on 13, the fact they found the ball was a good thing in the first place, but then he, he took full advantage of that, and it seems that Spieth has this ability to take his opportunities when he's presented with them. And that, to me, is a very rare gift. And I think also, we almost underappreciate Spieth because he's not flashy. He's not a guy you stand in the range and are wowed by, like Rory or Dustin Johnson or even Brooks Kepka. Those three are almost the archetypal modern golfers. They're so powerful, they're athletic, they're strong. Uh, they, they have really good all-round games. Jordan you know, hits the ball a very long way, but he's almost a throwback golfer. He has this slightly quirky-looking action. He seems to spray it about all, all over the place, which isn't necessarily true. It is more than others, but obviously at times this week, Jordan was actually aiming for the rough rather than the fairway, which seems a bit odd to say, but he was picking out yep. the right angles and trying to avoid the bunkers. So again, that comes back to my real point about Spieth is the reason people are not impressed by him is because they can't visibly see really what his biggest strength is, which is mm-hmm. his mentality, his his strength of his golfing intelligence. A little bit like Tiger back in the day as well, where he's so smart, he manages his game really well, and also he has this real will and determination. And I think great sports people, they almost seem to have this ability to sort of will the ball into the hole or any whatever sport they're playing in. You know, Jordan almost has that. Whether it's a concentration thing, a determination, an inner self-belief that he's going to hole this putt from 30 feet or he's going to make this great chip or he's going to get a great shot in at the right moment. He did all those things in those last few holes. And to me, that's that, that's a really special sports person. That, that's a very unique thing, a very rare thing. And so for me, it's not so much about the way he strikes the ball, which is very good from his iron play, or the way he puts the ball from longer distances, which is very impressive. But for me, the most impressive thing about Jordan Spieth is his psychological aspect, the way he approaches things. And for me right now, what we're almost seeing after this is, you know, Rory can beat you with his driving, so can Dustin and those guys. But now players can see Jordan Spieth as being the guy, when they're playing him in the heat of a major or any tournament or a Ryder Cup or whatever, no matter what, this guy can somehow find a way of beating you He's not got his best stuff, but yet he can turn it around because he's so mentally strong. And I think that is an intimidating factor in an almost different sense. So, Stuart, do you think, you mentioned there about Spieth not being the most exuberant character, the most kind of uh, charismatic figure, perhaps. But do you think, despite all he's achieved so far, that some people do almost underappreciate Spieth? Yeah. Yes, um, and it's it's difficult to underappreciate a three-time major champion, but um, it is. He's he's maybe maybe because we've just entered the post-Tiger era, and you're always any new golfer's always going to be um, compared with Tiger, and he's he's not Tiger. He's he's Jordan Spieth. He's not Rory McIlroy. He's Jordan Spieth, and although a lot of things that Jordan Spieth's done in his career, especially given his age, yeah contractually obliged to mention his age is 23, is 24 in four days' time. Um, <laughs> Not for much longer, yes, 24 in the next yeah. So uh, he's achieving a lot at a young age, but it's, oh, he's mm. not quite Tiger Woods, but he, he's not far off when you when you consider the number of wins he's had and the, the number of top tens. I mean, I think I saw today with some stat that he's, he's now won... He's been in the final group 10 times and he's won nine of them. That's kind of Tiger Woods kind of stats. This is now his third major championship from 19 starts, maybe. So that's it's not getting on mm-hmm. Tiger's 33% record, but it's, it's getting there. So we, I don't think we do appreciate Jordan enough. Um, but one other thing that you were talking about, Jordan's mental skills, I think one other thing that we, we tend to overlook is uh, Jordan's caddy, uh, Michael Grella. Uh, yeah. they, they do treat it as... 
a team. It's not just down to Jordan. He, mm-hmm. he thanked his caddy in the post-round interviews. He, you do feel like um, it is a team event for them. Um, in the past, a lot of golfers have just been on their own and the caddy's just a, a guy that they hire in. With Michael and Jordan, it's... I almost said Michael Jordan there. That's quite funny. Um, <laughs> but with, with Jordan Michael. <laughs> yeah, he was pretty wasn't he? <laughs> So, but with them, it's it's different. You think that you don't really see Michael, uh, sorry, Jordan, <laughs> performing without Michael in the bag. They're going to be together for the long time. Maybe, maybe this is something that they've learned from Tiger and Stevie, where they they were together for so mm. many years and they, they operated as a team. Um, and maybe this is the way that young golfers are going to go forward. That, that they are going to see the caddy as a valuable member of the team up there with their nutritionist and their, mm. their trainers. The, the caddy does have a big bit to play and it was it was probably Michael who helped turn Jordan around um, I think it was about 50 maybe gave him not quite the, the JP Fitzgerald talk that um, he gave to Rory the <laughs> other day but he, he did have a few choice words for Jordan about what what on earth are you doing here You're, you've just blown the lead get the, get the finger out and let's go so oh, yeah, um, yeah. I think, I think in the end, it's uh, you're right there. But Michael Greller, I think they have a great relationship there. And actually, you can see that because Jordan. This is a very rare thing, and something I kind of notice is that Jordan sometimes cleans his own clubs and actually puts the clubs back in the bag himself. So Michael's almost less of a caddy than some of the usual bag men are. He's more of a a, com- a companion on the golf course. You know, they are very much a team that way. And I think it is very important having his influence there by his side. And I'm sure you know Jordan would be the first to say that. But obviously, you know, again, his mental skills are, are just extraordinary, and uh, the fact he's achieved so much at this stage is, is remarkable. You know, I said earlier on Twitter where you know, the only guys who have won the Masters, the US Open and the Open, are Gene Sarazen, Ben Hogan, Jack Nicholas, Gary Player, Tiger Woods, Arnold Palmer, Tom Watson, and now Jordan Spieth. You, you can't dress it up in any other way that that is just an astonishing club to be part of, and that's what this young man is, is in now. And uh, yeah, he, we can sit and say he's, he's not the most exuberant character or you know, he's not the greatest off the tee. He's not got the most impressive of games in ter- on paper as such, even visually. But he, he's, he's such a good golfer. He's such a competitor. I think that's the key word. As Jordan reminds me of Jack Nicholas in the respect that Jack always talked about being a competitor. He missed golf was his kind of vehicle to be a co- to competition. That's what really got him going. And Jordan talks about that as well, where... He's looking forward to getting back and competing, not playing golf or whatever else. It's about competing. And I think that's different. And that's, a, again, a rare psychological trait where he just wants to win. And I think there was a real, there's a real determination and will to him that few players have, that few, few sports people have. And that can almost transcend you know, physical talent or just technical ability that maybe Rory has or Dustin Johnson has. And uh, so he's, he's, he's impressive and, and, and in different ways. And I think that for golf right now, we have actually a lot of really good players who are, who are impressive in different aspects of their game. And Jordan right now has this psychological aspect to his game that is, is so impressive. And I think that sets him apart. And that's why he's won the three majors and why I'm sure he'll win more going forward. Obviously, now he has a great chance to complete 
the Grand Slam and a few weeks at Quail Hollow. Uh, of course, Rory next April will be doing that, trying to do that at Augusta. So we have all these great storylines now going forward with these two guys. You know, Rory and Jordan. We didn't quite get the battle between the two of them. We may have liked at Burtdale, but we, we we certainly got Jordan at his best and playing just you know an unbelievable turnaround that I think few people will ever forget. You know, last year's Open was an amazing duel, which is back and forth. It was a classic. Forty years ago, we had the duel in the sun. This year, we had almost Jordan Spieth sort of dueling himself. And eventually, he won. And that was astonishing <laughs> in its own way. So it was one of the one of the real classic Opens in that respect. And I think it really was an a unbelievable climax. And it was um, one we'll not forget. But one guy, of course, who did play a big part in that, Stuart, was Matt Kutcher, who was there the last two days with Jordan. He, he, he hung with him on Saturday, apart from the double bogey on the 16th hole. Mr. Birdie put an 18 yesterday, but he was right there with him today. Obviously, had a great chance to win, had that two shot lead at one point, was thinking there. He had the Clark jug in his hands. And he probably thought there, well, I've got a two shot lead here. Jordan's struggling. If I birdie the two par fives and par in, I'll win comfortably. And in the end, he pretty much did that, but he still lost by three. And that it must have been a real a real boot in the, the proverbials for Matt Kutcher that because he was in a great position. He played steady, his game plan I'm sure was how it turned out for him. It transpired how he how he imagined it was going to be. And he, he spoke about how it really hurt him not winning this one. And I think it will. And you know, he's a guy who obviously he just turned thirty nine. Obviously open champions tend to be a little bit older, as we've seen in more recent years. Of course, Spieth now shattered that kind of uh, illusion. But more so, you know, he had a really good opportunity. Matt Kutcher has been around for a very long time now. This has been by far his best chance to win a major. How many will he have? We don't know. But you know, Stuart, talk about Matt Kutcher. He was there. He was very steady. He's more of a, a short hitter compared to some of the long hitting guys. He's a he's a really solid player. Uh, but you know, how much of a part do you think he played today in the drama? Well, was, that's certainly Matt Kutcher's best opportunity yet to win a major. I was, in a way, I was hoping he'd, he would win yeah. this afternoon because it, he's got such a nice guy. I mean, he does it swear. And there was a great video last week on one of the websites of him being bleeped out as if he was. Well, I was just hoping he would he would win and then just <laughs> let loose with almighty F-bombs on the 18th green. Yeah! But um, he, he must be wondering what he has to do to, to win a major. But that certainly is his best opportunity so far. I mean, he was... Uh, 65 was in first place after the first round. He was in second place after the second round, and then he was in the final group today. So, um, he was there, there, thereabouts, whereas in the past he's never really been in contention after the, the Saturday. Then he's got this reputation for backdooring a top 10 on a on a Sunday. So yes. I think that's, that was possibly the first time he's been on a, a final group of a major championship. I mean, he, he gave a good mm-hmm. account of himself. He didn't do very much wrong. He maybe could have done a bit better but um, when, when we first saw some of the scores coming out this morning there was a couple of 66s 67s on the course we thought maybe Matt could come in here for 66 67 and sneak the, the win and then when, jo- when Jordan Sweet came and started bogeying the first couple of holes we thought this is Matt's this is Matt's chance but he, he ended up with a, a 69 which was two under par it was probably not the score he was hoping for when he teed off this morning, but it was still a very good account of himself. So plenty of things to be positive about. It's another major that he's not won, but let's hopefully he can learn from this and move on. I did note that his, his family flew over last night from America and they were all waiting for them on the 18th green. It was lovely sights. I mean, the, the media love that kind of thing, that the, the family there. Just a shame that it wasn't for 
a better a better event than a second place, but he seemed to really appreciate them coming over. Um, Matt Matt's one of the nice guys in golf, and he's a, the bronze medal for the United States. So surely, mm. surely there must be a major somewhere for them. Is is of all the you always talk about awarding majors to people who deserve them. But Matt's name's always in the frame. Yeah, it certainly is. And uh, you're right there about Matt Kutcher. You know, a very accomplished player for a number of years now. He's had a real kind of up and down career, particularly early on. He lost his card after winning on the PGA Tour. Very good amateur player. Mm-hmm. I actually sort of compared uh, Matt to Justin Rose. I think they have very similar careers where they were great amateur players, turned professional, not quite successful early on, but then they've built themselves up over time. And obviously, Justin picked up his major four years ago at Mary, and I thought maybe perhaps today would be Matt's day of finally getting his major. At Burtdale, but didn't happen, of course. And obviously, you know, he did just about everything right. But Spieth, you know, he just turned it around remarkably. And uh, you know, Kutcher was caught up in a real kind of maelstrom of just genius. I think we can kind of say greatness from Jordan Spieth today. And that's what it was towards the end. It was just a remarkable finish. And uh, you know, Matt played his part, but yeah, it wasn't to be for him today, unfortunately. And looking down leaderboard, obviously we had uh, Li Tong from China, had a great final round, 63, came through and finished third in his own, the best week of his career by far, a very accomplished player, only 21 years of age, a name to look out for in the future. And of course, if China could get a major winner, that would just be stratospheric, potentially, for the game of golf internationally. But of course, the big yeah, star hope, really in the top four to was Rory Mack. Sorry, Kieran, I was just crashing yes, you there. I, was just, uh, yes. I hope you don't want me to talk about uh, Lee Hatong for very much because I don't actually know much about him other than the, if they put her into a pond. Which, <laughs> and his, his mother he then did. had to He did, he did, at the French... That's, yes. Yeah. That's yep. the only the French thing Open, that was him. one of the... Well, the thing is, that was the only thing to know about. Now, of course, he's now a third-place player in the Open Championship and, of course, he's, a, what is he, the 33rd player to shoot 63 in a major. So he has that going for him, but... It means less now, of course, after what Brandon Grace did on Saturday. But yeah, a great round for him. A very good player, one to watch going forward. But Roy McIlroy Stewart obviously has come into this week you know, in poor form. Missed a cut at US Open, Irish Open, Scottish Open. Game's not there, form's not there. Strange season, injuries, getting married, equipment change. Nothing's quite right for him. And obviously the first few holes on Thursday, disastrous. Five over par after six. Look destined for our miscut. Rory's in crisis, what are we going to do? But yet somehow he turned it around remarkably, showed real grit and determination. I think is actually an undervalued part of his game. He has it there. I sort of don't think he does, but I think he has got it there. You wouldn't be in his position as a player if he didn't have that anyway. Uh, obviously an immense talent and whatever else, but I think he has this mental grit as well there. A very determined player. He showed that in abundance to get right back into contention without really having his best stuff. We saw flashes of it, but didn't quite put it together. Uh, but yet he still finished in a tie for fourth. And that shows you how good Rory McIlroy is, and I still believe to this day, no matter how great Spieth is, but I still think if Rory plays to his very optimum best, I still believe in the right conditions, he is still the best player in the world. But obviously, you know, he hasn't quite shown it recently, but surely, Stuart, as you look forward to the, the PGA at Quail Hollow, where he's won twice before in the Wells Fargo Championship on the PGA Tour, that venue sets up perfectly for him. And surely now, Stuart, with this T4 behind him at the, at the Open, he can now build towards the PGA as being potentially you know, one of the favourites, perhaps a very likely favourite there when we get towards the last major of the year. Yeah, though the Macro, we spoke about him in the last podcast and we said he's either going to miss the cut or he's going to backdoor the top 10. And uh, lo and behold, he comes in at fourth <laughs> position. And after yes. after the, the start he had on, on Thursday, we thought, oh, 
here. <laughs> he's going to he's going to miss the cut and. He's got other plans this weekend. But well, that's what JP thought yeah, anyway, that's for sure. <laughs> yeah. I, mean, I think I've been quite vocal in my my views on JP before, but um, JP done exactly what he had to do with Dory and he, when he saw his, uh, his caddy bonus disappear and, and he, he had some a couple of stern words with him. And yeah, I mean, people use the phrase about Tiger moves the needle. Dory moved the needle when I was at, sadly, I couldn't watch him on Friday because I was at work but I was getting text messages from my son saying he was watching the golf he's like oh no he's charging through the field and for 18 holes the back nine of Thursday and the first nine of um, Friday was one, two, three, four, five, six. he was like 7 under par he was, he was going for his own 63 um, so yeah maybe Rory is still a little uh, as the rust as they call it he's a, he's a little match unfit but that was certainly a good workout for him and maybe though he's warm into the end of the season maybe maybe he's the only person in the world who cares about the FedEx Championship and he really wants to win himself a, another FedEx so really really pleased with Rory's performance he was okay he's not not open champion this time but he's I think he's certainly done a lot better than 90% of the people thought he would do so yes. onwards and upwards yep quail, quail hole well, as you said he's won down there um Jordan Spieth mm-hmm. hitting form, Rory hitting form. Uh, yeah, bring on the USPGA. Yeah, the last major of the year will be uh, really fascinating now. Obviously, Jordan going for the Grand Slam and, and Rory coming back into form. We have a real battle of styles there at Quill Hall. It would be, certainly be fascinating. But yeah, obviously, a much better week for Rory than we kind of anticipated. And uh, you know, perhaps signs that his game is coming back to where we obviously hope it is. Because obviously, when he's on form, he's just an extraordinary talent and just a wonderful player to watch. You know, he's just a... The kind of the, the cliche is poetry in motion. I think is the, the thing that expression that they use. And for Rory, it's probably quite apt because his golf swing is fantastic and his his game is equally brilliant. But obviously, he, he finished a tie for fourth with Rafa Cabrera Bello, the Scottish Open champion, who came through there and played well here at Birkdale as well. Uh, Matt Southgate, who of course made some stories last year, recovering from cancer to finish tied twelfth at Truden. He finished tied for sixth this year. Unfortunately, just missed out on a place in the Masters next year. He was there with Mark Leishman and Alex Noren and Brooks Kepka, but also Brandon Grace, who of course made history on Saturday, being the first man to ever shoot 62 in a major championship, you know, obviously in an unbelievable round. But one, of course, he didn't even realise the historical significance of it when he was playing. He had no idea that was a record. Uh, maybe that was for the best, but he came through and played this tremendously. Obviously, had a really low-scoring day on Saturday. He had a real combination of the, the greens being softened from the night before with the heavy rain, and then virtually no wind. It was just it was still as anything on Saturday. It was unbelievable, optimum scoring conditions, and players took advantage of that fact. But obviously, Brandon took it that little bit step further, and to make history right there. So, Stuart, obviously, that round is is remarkable. It's astonishing. It makes history. The first player to shoot 64 in a major was Lloyd Mangrum in the Masters in 1940. That record stood for 33 years until the the great Johnny Miller, I guess we can say, came through and shot 63 at Oakmont to win the US Open. And of course, that has really stood as being the figure as the benchmark for 44 years. And of course, Johnny, the joke was, was a little bit bitter about it. Maybe he was, but of course, he said some things that perhaps were a little bit, people were questioning a little bit, saying the golf course was playing easy and all the rest of it. Well, to be honest with you, he was right to an extent, and the golf course was playing easier, but not playing easy. No major course does play easy. And in the end, I think for Brandon, the fact he went out there and shot 62, at that point we're saying, well, oh, it might not even last a day. You could see a 61 or even more 62s. But of course, that didn't happen. And surely that, Fuzzy, is an indication of just how great that round was, was from Brandon. And actually the fact that 
who knows, it could last for many years to come as being the record. Yeah, at the time that they shot 62, I made the joke that it, it, this record possibly won't even last two hours because at the time Dustin Johnson was on uh, 59, <laughs> yes. 59 watches, it seemed. Um, I mean, yeah. on, Johnny's obviously going to be a bit upset about it. Yeah, fair, fair enough. It's not in the final day. It's not at Oakmont. Um, uh, Johnny's 63 Oakmont was sort of 10 shots better than the average of the field that day and Brandon Gracie's was only 6 shots better than the, the field average of that day but it's, it's still a 62 at the Open <laughs> the end of the day running it, off, absolutely. it's still a 62 yeah and um, looking through I mean there was plenty of 66s, 67s that day but the, the golf course was there for the taking. They did cut the greens three times on Saturday morning. It was because of the amount of rain they had on the Friday. The course was kind of defensive. There was yep. no wind. The the greens had been softened up. They they did do the the best they could to try and get the greens up to speed. But quite quite unusually, it was the course played its shortest on Saturday. They could have made that course longer, but they chose not to. So maybe the RNAs having a wee bit of fun here as well. They wanted to they wanted to make it fun for the spectators who came out. It was they, they had a huge crowd at Birdie, and like, let's give them some birdies to look at. So maybe a, a little a little um, message being sent by the RNA here that they they're trying to put to the other major championships that maybe tough isn't fun. Maybe birdies is fun. And here's a guy, Brandon Gracie, shot sixty two. With the equipment these days, I don't think it will last another thirty forty years. But let's see how long it can last. Yeah, I think at the end you're right there about the RNA. I think actually. Ultimately, when it comes to Lynx Golf in the open, it's all about the conditions. When the weather's inclement, when the wind's blowing, when the rain's there, as we saw the first couple of days, the scoring can be very high. That's always the case. But then, the flip side, when it's very calm and soft, any Lynx Golf course will play easy and inverted commas. Obviously, it's not easy, but easier for these guys. Whether it be any of them. We've seen 64 shot around Carnisty, for example, in soft conditions. Anything can happen. And um, again, it's about the conditions. I think the RNA have actually, in more recent years, have got the balance right, where, go back to Carnoustie 99, the rough was too long there, it became carnage. And obviously, nine years ago at Birkdale, it was very difficult there because of the conditions. This year, it wasn't quite that level. We had a very kind of balanced weather, I think, overall, a little bit here or there, made it interesting, obviously, a good balance of conditions. Where last year at Troon, there wasn't the conditions were not really hard at all. But that said, that was a case of two guys who were playing unbelievable golf last year, and Mickelson and Stenson who ran away from the field. Other than that, they got the scoring was kind of as you would expect it to be. So that was kind of a unique case. But this year, I think you know, one guy reaching double digits under par and Spieth is kind of what they would expect given the conditions. So, but again, I saw an interesting theory from uh, golf journalist John Huggan in a Golf Digest who wrote about the fact that he has heard some murmurs that the RNA and indeed the USGA are finally coming round to the whole idea of the ball going too far. Mm-hmm. And the, the, setup on Saturday, the setup on Saturday at the Open, pushing the tees up and so on, was actually, was actually trying to make the point that maybe the, ball, the golf ball does go too far and something really should be done about it. There should be a conversation around it. I think John, if anyone knows John's work, then perhaps some wishful thinking on the part of Mr. Hug and also a bit of credit to the RNA as surprising from him, I have to say. So I'm not sure about that one, but certainly, given the way the golf ball is going, Stuart, obviously these scores are happening more frequently. I think when we come back to the old course at St Andrews, which I always thought was going to be the one that would yield a 62 before any other one, that hasn't turned out to be the case. But nowadays, Stuart, with the modern equipment and the modern golf ball, if you aren't tricking these golf courses up with ridiculous greens and crazy rough, 
when the conditions are soft and perfect, they will take it apart. And uh, here's a question for you. Do you think that's good for the game or should we try and address that somehow? <laughs> uh, how long have we got? I'm asking you tough questions tonight. <laughs> um, it's, it's, it's interesting that John Huggins saying that um, the RNA are trying to prove a point about the ball going too far when it's actually within their, their control if they want to get the ball changed or not. I don't know how they're, who they're making the point to other than themselves. I think it's to the manufacturing companies. I think they're trying to create a yeah. conversation. At least that's that, that's the the point that John's trying to make. I'm not sure if it's true or not, but we'll, he, he's insistent that it is. But maybe we are in the we are in the verge of rendering a lot of old classic courses um, un, unplayable because of mm-hmm. of the distance we're hitting off the team. Maybe we don't want eight thousand yards Erin Hills courses for our US Opens. We want to keep the old ones like Oakmont um, and even uh, uh, or oh, Merion. I'm not sure if they yeah, ever go yeah. back to Merion after that, but even courses like Merion, they want to keep those ones relevant because it's always better going back to a classic course than it is to somewhere that nobody's ever played before. Um, so, yeah, I think maybe that's what the, the Ardennes is up, up to there. Um, what, what they'll do, bifurcation or a change in the ball, a change in the clubs, or maybe these guys will always work it away getting around these things. I mean, they had to put up an internal out of bounds on the 10th hole this week because they decided to start cutting over the, the corner. These guys are always pretty smart yes. and they try to work out their, their weight around these. So I, I draw a lot of parallels with Formula One. They, they drop, drop rules for the cars within Formula One and it's up to the teams to then try and maximise what they can do around these rules. This is what's going to be about golf. If they do ever decide to change the ball, it just creates a new benchmark that they then have to start working away again. It's not necessarily going to be a bad thing, especially uh, even if it's bifurcation where the, the pros are going to have different rules from us mere mortals. Um, I, I wouldn't be too bored if I've got a ball that goes much further than a pro because I'm never going to have the same swing speed as a pro. So it'll make me feel a bit better that I can perhaps imagine that this this is a putt for the Open Championship where, in, in fact, these guys are on a on a different planet. They really are. Well, they are on a different planet and you combine the modern equipment with the great technique and that's why they hit the ball so far. And I think in the end, we actually are reaching now a tipping point. Look at Aaron Hills, a golf course that measured almost 8,000 yards, like you said there. And yet the winning score was 16 under par. It doesn't matter anymore how long a golf course is. It has to be almost 9,000 yards for it to be truly testing just from length alone. So unless you trick up a long rough, as I saw at Merion four years ago, where a very short course essentially turned into like a joke, really. A very classic layout there. They grew rough everywhere. The fairways were about the size of a dinner table. Uh, the greens were ridiculously paced. Guys still moan about to this day, looking back on that one. So unless you do that, then that these golf courses are becoming obsolete. You know, the old courses, Andrews, which of course is my favourite golf course in the world, the, the game's ultimate monument, there are now tees in the old course that aren't even on the old course. What's that all about? They're out of bounds. 17th tee, 14th tee, you know, stuff like that. Second tee even. It's crazy. And that's where we're at now. And uh, the RNA know fine well. They, they come up with their silly you know, stats, but they know fine well the ball's going further than ever before. And I think now we're at a stage where... If you want these great classic courses to remain relevant, something has to be done. And whether that will happen or not, I don't know. I think perhaps the ship has long sailed in that one, but who knows? Uh, it's wishful thinking there. But certainly it's an interesting little subplot to majors uh, going forward, I think, where we see these golf courses that are not long or 
tricked up you know what the scoring is like there if the conditions are receptive as they were at Birkdale over the weekend so you're moving obviously now to kind of away from the open a little bit in terms of the, the television coverage obviously Sky Sports have had it for the second year now full live coverage this year they had great praise last year for their coverage at Troon obviously very innovative giving us really all four days live from start to finish which is obviously a great thing to have great insight analysis detailed conversations all the rest of it, you know, great historical videos being shown as well, old open films and whatnot. The open zone, obviously, a really fun innovation. I think golfers enjoy watching and seeing the, the pros explain different shots they hit and so on. It's really insightful stuff. So, Stuart, looking at the, the Sky Sports coverage, and uh, it's funny, you know, Martin Slumbers, the uh, RNA chief executive, got a bit touchy about this the other day when someone mentioned the, the PGA Championship going to the BBC from Sky, obviously, later this year. And he mentioned that the BBC's coverage was tired and outdated and Sky have changed the game entirely and all the rest of it, which is a very odd thing to say given the course that the Open has a relationship with the BBC to this day for the radio coverage and indeed the Open highlights, both of which have a higher viewership than Sky's live television coverage. Very odd thing to say from a man who says nothing controversial usually, a complete blank object usually, but he was very uh, candid for once, a bit strangely. So Stuart, looking at the, the balance between access, obviously... Less people watch the Open on Sky than anywhere else, but the coverage that they do deliver is surely tremendous. And uh, does that make up for the fact that less people watch the Open or not? What do you think? I, I quite like the, the balance I've got now because the, the people who are going to sit down and watch 10, 12, even 14 hour, hours of coverage are people who are going to be yeah. absolute golf golf nuts, and they are the people who are going to be watching the European Tour and the, the PGA Tour every week, and they've got the Sky subscription anyway. So it, it makes sense that the, the Open is on Sky. I mean, the the free-to-air on the BBC, the the Open was one of the the Tier 1 um, off, off-com uh, sporting events where it had to be shown on the BBC and then it got moved down to the tier 2 which meant it was optional if it was on the BBC or they have to just show a, a free tier highlights package but the, the RNA did their research that despite increasing coverage on the BBC additional red buttons they had four, four red button channels at one point maybe about five years ago but participation in the sport continued to decline so there isn't a set there isn't a proven link between free to air golf on the BBC and um, sorry, free to air golf on the BBC and participation in the sport. Yeah. So uh, uh, the RNA did what most other people, if there isn't a link there, why we were the BBC and the event of Sky. And I think what Sky have done, they're still getting a lot of criticism on social media just now, but I love what they're doing. I mean, in the week running up to the Open, mm-hmm. they've got a dedicated channel, they show all the classic ones. And I really enjoyed watching the Sky Open Zone where Jordan Spieth ended up at the 13th hole <laughs> today. He, he liked it so much he wanted to go back. Um, I mean, yes, and my, my, my tip for the week, Ricky Fowler, um, I loved watching him in the open zone. This is why he's my tip. He, they were the track man, the, the shot chaser on him, and he was shown demonstrating every type of shot that he needed at the links. He was just doing it on demand. Um, and it was just fascinating to watch. And I, I, I don't think Ricky Fowler's got a great reputation for being kind of wordy or knowledgeable about golf, but he really gave a, a good account about himself, and I, I enjoyed watching him. And there was also... Um, uh, the guy John John Ram was in a bunker with a four iron, very rem- reminiscent about right. Seve as well. So it, Sky gave a lot of great 
a great moments on the run up to the coverage. The coverage itself, they're doing fourteen hours, and the BBC used to do fourteen hours. So maybe the the Thursday to Sunday isn't that much different to what the BBC done. They've got a lot of new inventions. Been I watched the open coverage a couple of years ago when I was in America, and they had TrackMan all over the place. And then when I came back and I watched the BBC coverage at St Andrews, there was nothing. I, I don't understand how the Americans could have TrackMan and we don't. But I noticed it today. Um, just having that map up the side of the screen and the shot tracer showing where the shot's going, that's the best in innovation that golf has seen in the last 10 years. It just explains so much to the viewer, it, even the, the casual viewer, that you know where the ball's going, you know what they're trying to do, the shape of shot and the, the whole line ahead. And that's the kind of innovation that Sky are bringing to the, the TV coverage that just hasn't happened in the last couple of years for the BBC. But what the BBC are still doing is they've still got a two-hours highlights package in the evening. So even your casual golfer viewer, they're not going to watch more than two hours. They're not going to sit down for a 14-hour marathon broadcast. So I think what the BBC have got is still quite acceptable. This nice two-hour package on a Thursday, Friday, Saturday night. And it's it's enough to keep kids interested. Kids aren't going to watch Sunday on the 13th yeah. hole on a Tuesday. Uh, sorry, Sunday. Saturday afternoon, they're just going to watch the highlights, the best bits, the lead up to the presentation of the Claddagh Jug. So I'm really happy with the, the way it is just now. Give Sky the 14 hours, give the BBC the two hours. That's I'm I'm happy for that. But um, yeah, as as it transpired in the last week, the BBC have now got the rights to the PGA Championship, and that's that's a bit of an unknown. We're not sure where they're going to go from this. If for starts, the BBC have got rights to the World's Athletic Championships so are the BBC just going to shove it onto a red button? Are they going to dedicate BBC 2 or BBC 4? We're not sure. It's, it's early days. We need to see um, what's going to come out in the wash about that. So this is maybe the BBC's last chance to show that they actually are interested in golf and we'll see if they put Ellie Barber on the coverage or maybe somebody else. Well, I think Ellie Barber will be there. We must quickly mention that Ellie Barber is, of course, a, a very well-known presenter and also a St. Johnston Football Club supporter. So I must quickly mention that there, of course, is there. So I'm only maybe number 12 on the list of famous St. Johnston fans, Stuart, but she's uh, probably in the top five. Uh, but yeah, a very good presenter, and she'll be doing the BBC uh, for the PGA Championship. Of course, you mentioned the PGA there in the BBC, but right now, of course, the BBC have committed to live coverage of the Masters over the weekend for the next two years, but Sky, of course, right now, haven't. So if the PGA Championship is a success in the BBC, that may influence the Green Jackets as to whether they go for another year with Sky or not, because Sky were desperate to have all four days live themselves exclusively, but they haven't got that. And Sky Sports are having some internal issues right now, and uh, it's fascinating given the fact they've launched a new golf channel, they've lost the PGA, they may lose the Masters, it doesn't look very good. So for all the good things that Sky do, and I'm with you there in terms of the balance and what they do is fantastic, there's some kind of long-term questions there as to what Sky's commitment to golf will be over the next five years. I think there's an issue there, potentially. Um, so we'll have to wait and see how that plays out in terms of the, PT, the pay TV market and so on going forward. But in terms of Sky's coverage itself, you know, I enjoy it. I think it's very good. I think the analysts are very good there. Apart from, you know, I don't know what happened. Darren Clark's hair today was just astonishing. It was um, like a flapjack <laughs> on top of his head. It was incredible. I'm not sure what was going on there. You know, Paul McGinley's hair has made a miraculous recovery in the past six months. He's had some sort of miracle grow put on his head there. I think it's incredible. And I must also quickly say that I'm a big fan of Richard Boxall, who I think is a very fun commentator and uh, has a very kind of inimitable style. And I should also apologise retrospectively to Richard for 
I should tell a story where at Glen Eagles in the 2010 uh, PGA Centenary match event near the Johnny Walker Championship there, I was out watching, had an umbrella in my hand, I knelt over to tie my shoelaces, and unfortunately my umbrella caught Richard Boxall in the Boxalls uh, <laughs> that day. So so I apologise, Richard. Uh, I, I, actually, I did indeed catch Boxy in the Boxy. And uh, so Richard may have spoken with a bit of a high-pitched voice, on coverage that day, seven years ago. But uh, yeah, I, that was an unfortunate incident involving myself and Mitchell Boxall that I do apologise for. So the guy has no luck. He broke his leg at the open. Now he got caught in a private area by me with an umbrella. So there we are. But yeah, I think Sky's coverage was exceptional this week. Very professional, very high tech, pushing innovation in so many different ways, bringing greater insight and so on. And really taking advantage of the fact they have obviously that dedicated channel and making the most of it. And really, of course, they were. To be honest with you, of course, the two years I've had the open, they couldn't have asked for better ones, really. The, the duel last year and, of course, the drama this year. So they've had two really good years and obviously they'll be looking forward now to, forward to uh, Carnoustie in 12 months' time. So, Stuart, obviously now we're coming towards the end of this podcast. You know, the Open Championship this year was a really an incredible finish, one that we will never forget. Jordan Spieth came through, won three majors now, three different majors. He's on the cusp of history at such a young age. We can't underplay that in any way. He's a remarkable player, a wonderful sportsman, uh, has a tremendous uh, intelligence on the golf course, a great game to go with it, and he's really formidable. And obviously now Rory Macro coming back into form, you know, looking ahead to the PGA, it should be fantastic there. Potentially a real, a real highlight to the end of the, the major season, obviously in August. And um, so I'm looking forward to that immensely. So Stuart, obviously you're watching the Open. Usually you like to go down and watch one day of the week, but obviously you couldn't quite get down there this year. Mm. So... What were your final thoughts in the Open this year, Fuzzy? Did you, where does it rank in terms of, uh, in your mind, as for the compared to the Opens that you've seen before? How good was this Open compared to some of the other ones you've seen in the past? Yeah, I mean, it, it's not the the it's not up there with Jonas Son or the the Jochstund last year. But in terms of excitement, yeah, it was a, a great final round. Um, maybe it was the 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 weather on the Friday typical Open where there was. That maybe distracts from that a little. I tend to like opens that are very sunny when the ball runs 400 yards into the rough and the rough's very <laughs> wispy and you can't hold a green. That's my, I don't like to see open venues that are too green. But overall, yeah, Birkdale was a great course. The players seem to like it. The fans certainly turned out about it. It's got a great catchment area for the Liverpool-Manchester conurbations nearby. So they're always yeah, going to yeah. get good numbers there. So um, it's right up there for one of as one of the better Opens anyway, and we were talking about coming into this Open that nobody was really firing, there wasn't a clear favourite coming into this Open, and what's happened is we've now left this Open, Spieth's the champion, Rory's come back into form, even DJ had a couple of good rounds, DJ sneaked up the leaderboard mm-hmm. today as well, he's the he's still the world number one, he's coming into a bit of form one. Um, so now coming into the, the US PGA, um, and it's almost the reverse of the Open, where we've now got a lot of guys really warming up as this, this season's went on. So um, I'm just looking forward to two weeks to go to the USPG. Yes, bring it on, please. Yeah, absolutely. And you, I think the good point there, and the way to kind of end it would be, actually, you mentioned there about the Open, obviously. I think this year at the Open, we were actually looking for storylines coming in. But now we have storylines already written for us going into the PJ, and that's going to be really fascinating. Obviously, that major sort of struggles for attention normally, but I think this year 
you know, with Spieth there and Rory, it, it might uh, catch some uh, attention this uh, this August. So that should be fantastic. But yeah, Birkdale is one of the better open venues. Record crowds this year for an open championship in England. Though I'm not sure how far back those records actually go, so I'm a little bit suspicious of that compared to opens back in the 60s. However, I think it's um, huge crowds there, a great atmosphere, a great turnout. Wonderful infrastructure. The Open's become so big now. It's just a, a real, really impressive to actually see, see even on television. It's really striking now, all the stands and the hospitality and so on. And uh, obviously, in the end, they got a great champion. And that is ultimately the ultimate kind of uh, barometer as to whether an Open was a success. You know, was the final day memorable? Yes, it was. Have a great winner? Yes, we did. So, yeah, Open 2017 was uh, a success. And uh, Open 2018 at Carnoustie has a lot to live up to, I have to say. So, again... Stuart, thank you for joining me tonight on the Golf Shake podcast, obviously coming after the Open. Uh, a shame we didn't have our good pal Josh on tonight, but I'm sure we'll have him back at some point in the future when he returns from his adventures uh, elsewhere. And uh, obviously, listeners, if, you enjoy, if, you, if you've lasted the whole duration of the podcast, thank you for listening to it. And uh-huh. uh, hope you enjoyed the Open Championship. And uh, we'll see you again next time. Thank you for listening. Cheers.